Lingard is joining in, and he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the roof, and touched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka! Hello and welcome back to the Bruised Banana FC podcast where today we get to talk about, among other things, a fantastic, emphatic, completely dramaless 5-0 win against Sheffield United at the weekend, which puts Arsenal firmly back into second place. And a lovely bit of goal difference too, which you can never really complain about. I am joined today by the filthiest Ben. Ben, wasn't that just brilliant? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be fair... I might be filthy, but the weather outside is filthy. We're in that part of England, you know, where the clocks have just gone back and it's grey and damp it's dark, and it always gets dark. And it's like, <laughs> honestly, it makes me want to go and relocate. And then I remember that I'd be so, I'd, you know, if I was on the other side of the pond, I'd be getting up at 6am to watch Arsenal play. And that's that sounds even worse, to be honest. So we're in that, we're in the hibernation period. Um, but it was, it was a really good result uh, going back, back to topic. Um, <laughs> back to football, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was... I think it was needed because we've had a lot of results this season where we've been saying, oh, you know, our attack hasn't clicked or we're winning by too fine a margins or we're throwing away wins where we should be winning more comfortably like against Fulham. So it was really nice to get a nice comprehensive one, as bad as Sheffield United may be. Um, And there were lots of positives to take, as I'm sure we'll go into. Exactly that. And um, we were unbeaten in the last 19 home games against Sheffield United in all competitions since 1971. We were able to rest Gabriel, we were able to rest Odegaard, who after the game, um, Arteta said has been carrying an injury over the last few weeks and he has played a lot, to be fair. So I think, I think he actually surprising. said Odegaard's been carrying a small thing for a few weeks, which in my mind was, you know, not great for the trolls on Twitter. But how did it's weird, isn't it? This it feels like there's so many people that just want to kind of jump on this uh, this anti Odegaard narrative and I, I just don't get it. I really, really don't get it. It's so strange to me. But, you know, we didn't need him today. Luckily, we were able to kind of control a game, admittedly, as you said, against a poor opponent who has injury issues of their own. I think I remember a match of the day saying that Sheffield United had the longest injury list in the Premier League at the moment. They have had the joint worst start after this game to any Premier League side of all time. This is clearly a, a team that is not necessarily equipped to be in the Premier League. So we should be winning fun, practically. Fun fact. Do you know who the other team to have the worst start in the Premier League was? This <laughs> is Sheffield United again, isn't it? <laughs> it is Sheffield United. I think it was nineteen twenty, the COVID season. Yeah, oh god. Uh, but I think this this too. team's got worse goal difference, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So they were. I mean, they, they're genuinely going to challenge Derby's points record at this rate. They've got one point after ten games. God. It, it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's leaning a bit away from Arsenal, this discussion, but like, as much as you love seeing the teams like Sheffield United and, and Luton come up, and the story of it all, like the story around Luton was amazing, but when they come up and they don't necessarily look equipped, you kind of think, oh, this has actually gotten old quite fast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you say, there's a certain novelty to like Luton, but when it's Norwich or Sheffield United and they've been up before and you sort of know what they're about and they come back up again... And they do the same sort of thing in the summer where they didn't spend as much as maybe other clubs around them or on as, as um, I think their record transfer was trusty, wasn't it? Until very late in the window. Mm. And they sold um, Sander, Sander Berger. Yeah. 
So I just felt like they didn't bring in anyone of Premier League quality to a squad that was already lacking Premier League quality. So it was a bit like, you know, if it isn't the consequences of my own actions kind of vibes, but also you'd quite like them to have been able to have the feel like they had the financial muscle or the, the draw to to bring in players of a certain quality. You know, when you look at Bournemouth bringing in players from top clubs in Europe's top leagues, same with Forrest. Forrest went and bought Sangari, for God's sake. And he was on the radar. Of, you know, he'd do a job at Man United at this point. But then again, I mean, you'd do a job at Man United, but not the point. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they brought in really top top level players from around Europe and Sheffield United just didn't have that luxury. And Luton mostly didn't either. They're relying on Carlton Morris for their goals. So it feels like there's a massive, massive gulf, maybe as big as we've ever seen, between the bottom three and maybe Bournemouth at the moment because of Iriola. And then the rest of the league, and then even above that, sort of the top the top nine as well. Because there are there are eight or nine teams at the very top, and you can s- split them how you want. But though all those teams are going to be in and around the European place by the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. But I guess at the end of the day for it is, you can only beat what's in front of you. And this is Sheffield United that pushed Manchester United very, very close um, only just last week. And I think um, most people probably argue they were the better team in that game, which kind of sounds ridiculous when you're considering the performance they've put in against us. But I guess, you know, this was a game that is the perfect for us to rotate in. As said before, we were able to rest Gabriel, we were able to rest um, Erdegaard. We had uh, Smith Rowe come in for his first Premier League start since the Newcastle 2-0 loss um, season before last, which probably isn't the game we really want to revisit, but yeah, that was the last don't, don't time. Rem- don't remind me of that. I remember. <laughs> do you remember when we had Ben White playing on one leg and I think he scored the own goal and you just felt so bad Probably. for him? Because he he's, gone, so off hard, the, he's so. gone off the game before. Like, all the hope of him playing through painkillers and then, yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, happier topic. Sheffield United. Happier topic, Let's talk yeah, about them like, a bit more. Is it? I mean, like, Esau didn't really do much in the game, I don't think, but it's just good to see him get that time. Do you know what I mean? Like, the fact that He's gotten into the 11. The fact that he spent so much time very visibly behind Fabio Vieira in the pecking order. And now he's able to kind of, when we're in this game where we're going to rotate, he's the guy that's able to come in. So it's proven that he's been able to do something on the training pitch to show Arteta that he's ready for this type of responsibility. Do you think that, like, like what is the next step for Smith Rowe in, in this team? Because, you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about West Ham later on. It could be that Smith Rowe keeps his place for that, that, um, that game in the League Cup. Uh, do you think that realistically he can kind of challenge the likes of Fabio Vieira and Havertz for that place? You'd hope so. I think at the moment he's quite versatile. He can sort of do, but the problem is a lot of Arsenal's squad is quite versatile. You know, Trossard can play mm-hmm. four or five different places. Um, Jesus can play a, a few. Havertz can play a few. It, it feels like the next step for him is just getting regular minutes and as you mentioned, sort of getting the trust of Arteta back because it does feel like he's been sidelined a lot early in the season as well with Fabio Vieira and the Kai Havertz conundrum. Um, it feels like there's a real... We, well, we know there's a real player in there and he looked really rusty in the first 15 minutes, I thought. Um, but once he shook that off, I thought he was pretty promising. I think that, as I say, getting regular minutes, getting some goal contributions and sort of not high... like not highlight real stuff, but sort of the things that make fans want him to play more. You know, you I think I think his whole image is taking quite a big big blow. Like the fans still love him, but it's so difficult to to back him regularly when you see him getting like five, ten minutes or hearing the stuff about 
him not having the right attitude and training or hints from Arteta that maybe he's not completely where he should be. So I think he needs to be getting regular minutes and showing what he can do because he's, is he 23 now? Is he 22? He's in, um, that, in that ballpark. So it is really the time where he needs to kick on in his career. Um, and there's so much competition there that he really does need to put, uh, I think we've been saying it for 12 to 18 months. This is the time where he really needs to start putting a stamp on it on this team and saying I'm ready to take us to challenging for the title again and it's great to have someone of his caliber as a squad player but it's hard to envisage him if he's fully fit and gets back to the levels he was at staying a squad player for one reason or another you know he'll either leave or he'll be promoted yeah I think he's in for lack of a better term Jesse Lingard's territory isn't he where um he showed a lot of promise coming up and you kind of feel like there could be a future for him at the club. And then it kind of gets to that point where he's on the bench a lot. He's kind of in and out of the team. And and then very, very quickly, you just kind of lose that career, don't you? Like, well, you haven't really nailed down a place. And then just rotational um, option for the next kind of like four or five years. And then, you know, realistically, where where do you go from there? I think that he needs to have these games, these performances. He needs minutes, right? Because as, as I said before, last start in the Premier League was... Um, season before last he uh barely played at all last season he had a good collection of minutes for the under 21s in the summer and I, I watched some of those games I thought he was all right but I thought that he'd, he'd really use that to kick on and maybe have a bit more of an impact early in the season it didn't really transpire that way so the fact that he'd come in in such an emphatic win does his stock good because he's part of, of that career even though um, he's still feeling his way in, and obviously he needs match fitness and match sharpness. He's part. Do you of... think? Sorry, I was just going to say. Do you think when you? Because I agree with you. When I looked at him at the under twenty ones, I thought, "Oh, he's all right. He's not doing anything amazing." And it feels like he's regressed from the player that he was two years ago to where you know we looked at him and said he's one of our best academy graduates, and he'll be a starter for the next decade with Saka. To a point where he's sort of like he's all right. He's doing he's doing good things, but you know the expectations have dropped off. Do you think that's in part because the team around him's improved so much? Where the I suppose there isn't the stark difference of having Willian to Smith Rowe. It's now <laughs> Erdegaard to Smith Rowe or Vieira to Smith Rowe. Or do you think? And do you think like that's something you can get back? That sort of I, I remember like for me, I remember Jamie Carragher. I can't remember the game it was after, but he was on Sky Sports and he was comparing him to Jack Grealish and saying he was the best dribbler in the league and um. I just, I just wonder. Do you think he's sort of lost that, or do you think that's something that can come back with game time? It's interesting you say that, isn't it? Because I think, without a shadow of doubt, the team has improved massively since Smith Rowe was one of the main men. And I think what was that that the season that he played most games under Arteta, he was our top scorer in the league. I want to say I might be wrong saying that. Yeah, I think he got twelve, maybe. Yeah, and he scored a lot of really fantastic goals. I remember like the goal against Brentford, like um, where he kind of like picks the ball up, runs straight at the defender, kind of cuts in and shoots, scored against Chelsea, scored a really good goal against Aston Villa. So it, the, the quality is there. And the the really strange thing about it is the probably the one position in the team that is really open is that spot, that left left centre midfield spot um, where no one has grabbed that spot. You know, Havertz has been signed for what, 60, 65 million with the intention of eventually taking that spot. And I imagine, you know, we're going to put time and effort into giving him the opportunities to do that. But obviously at this point in time, he hasn't. Fabio Vieira has had some good showings this season and he still hasn't been nailed down that spot. 
Smith Rowe got his go against Sheffield United and, you know, he didn't do much brilliant, which is understandable because of the lack of minutes he's had, but also he didn't really do anything wrong either. So, you know, the, the chance is there for him if, if he can take it. And I think he has to, you know, it's, it's a saturated crowd at Arsenal. Like you say, with the versatility of the players we have, it takes a lot to kind of cut through all, all these kind of talented players to say that you're the one that deserves to get the minutes he'll need to get match sharpness. But, you know, with West Ham coming up, if he can get another game under his belt, then, you know, I think he's got every chance. But, you know, he has to go up a level and, and he has to show consistency, which is maybe the thing he hasn't shown over the last season. He's got to, he's got to stay fit as well. Yeah, well, that's that is the big, the big thing, thing, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's because every time it felt like he was about to come back, it just felt like he <laughs> he was away again. And now he's been fit for a little while and he struggled to kind of get back in. But the only way he's going to replicate the Smith Rowe that we used to see is if he proves that he can get enough minutes. You know, at at the elite level of sport and Arsenal competing at the elite level of football right now, no, there's no givens. Like a couple of years ago, maybe you could say, oh, Smith Rowe's fit. He deserves time to get back to match fitness. But at, this, at the same time, when you're Arsenal Football Club up against Manchester City uh, trying to win the Premier League, there are no kind of gimmies like that. You have to prove yourself. You have to prove that you can go into the game and and do a job for the team. It can't just be that Smith Rowe is a talented player that deserves to um, get match match uh, sharpness back and the time to do that because it doesn't work that way because Arsenal have players that can potentially go into the squad and, and have a bigger impact and win the game for the club. So the, the onus is, is, mm-hmm. is definitely on him now. Um, and probably a good segue from Smith Rowe to another Hayland boy and uh, ex Chelsea boy, that, um, you know that we played um, the game before, is the clear man of the match, and you know a bit of a lightning rod of opinion over it's Declan Rice. Isn't it? Well, to, to be fair, we should probably talk about Declan Rice at some point because he's absolutely unbelievable. But today we get to talk about Eddie Nketiah, who scored a hat trick um, of three very very good goals, I think, and I think before the game. Nketiah wasn't the person that I would have preferred to start up front. I don't know if uh, your opinion was the same. I probably would have preferred Havertz or Trossard to start up front just because of that kind of that link, that fall. It just feels like we normally play better with that. But to be fair to Eddie, he's come in and he can't argue with goals. And that's maybe the the thing that we're waiting to see from Eddie a bit more consistently. What did you think of, of Nketiah's performance? Yeah, it was so... Well, I mean, yeah, I, think he, I think he was very, very good. But I... Going back to your sort of side point about um, whether he should have started, I remember we were discussing it sort of in our group chats. I think um, Nate said that Nketiah always seems to perform when people start doubting him. It's like he needs something to prove to people, um, Why does he need which that I think was yeah. But also, I think I, think, I, 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 I personally wanted him to start. Like I, I, I don't. I we watched Havertz and. Trossard uh, played together was it against Fulham I think and mm-hmm. one of them played left eight and one of them played number nine and it was sort of like it was a bit of a clown show you know they were stepping on each other's shirt, shoes and it didn't help that Trossard couldn't control the football to save his life that day but um, <laughs> you know it was a sort of experiment that I thought should be shelved for a bit and it was I think it was probably when Havertz started sort of drifting out of the idea of starting every game because I know at the beginning of the season Mikel Arteta was adamant that Havertz was going to start he's going to come good and then it, he tried him in a few different places and it didn't really work. But I, I always think Nketiah sort of gives you that Gabriel Jesus light almost that the team thrives around. 
Like he's obviously not Gabriel Jesus, although he's I think he's now scored more goals than Gabriel Jesus this season. Um but I think that he he is sort of that player that allows the the team to play in the same way without changing too much else. Um, he's not as involved as Gabriel Jesus. You know, he's not dropping in at centre back to try and link the play or move forward as we've seen Jesus do. But I do think that he offers that focal point, and he takes ch- the thing is he takes chances when they come. I can't think of I, I can't think of a fourth shot on target he had. Can you? Uh, what would you say? Like, I can't think of like a like a poor shot on target. Yeah, I can't think of a chance that he had that he missed on Saturday. Um, I, oh no, no, on Saturday, no. I think he had like three goals from four shots, four or five. Shots. Well, exactly. Like he is, mm. he's either clinical or, you know, he doesn't get involved that much. And I think that he makes the most of opportunities when they come. He's very unorthodox, there, there isn't he? Like, like the, yeah. the the goal he nearly scored against Chelsea. That's yeah, not that a, was a strange one. It's not a chance that many strikers would even have the imagination to go for, I think. That's probably like one of the big things about him is that no matter where he is, he's always got a picture in his mind of how he wants to shoot, even if it's not an angle or, or, or something, or like the ball's dropping or he has to kind of stretch or something. It always seems like he's able to kind of get these these weird shots on goal which take people by surprise. And if that one against Chelsea went in, then wow, could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like he he was always that kid, that tapping merchant kid, but almost, you know, I remember there was a, a stat that was like his last 15 goals have come from inside the penalty area, inside the 60-yard box or something ridiculous. Um, and I think if he can if he can start adding long-range shooting, like we saw uh, sort of against Chelsea and more specifically against Sheffield United, then there's a real player in there. You know, he's still developing. That's the most, I think that's the scariest thing about him. I remember him coming on, I think it was Carabao Cup against Watford when he came on and scored twice immediately um, and won us the game. But it's just like he's progressed so much and I I, do, I think there's a genuine chance for him to make it at Arsenal because he's, I mean, beyond sort of the fanfare of wanting another striker that isn't Eddie Nketiah, basically, uh, you know, an elite. Because he's, he's not really viewed as elite, is he? And I think... No that's the criticism that a lot will level at him. Like he's not elite in the Gabriel Jesus mold of being a false nine elite. And he's not elite in the um, like perceived Ivan Tony, Victor Osterman, uh, Evan Ferguson mold of being that hold up striker that scores loads of goals from random areas. He's in that sort of middle ground where he's a really good, he's a very, very good striker, but is he the one that can win Arsenal the league? And I suppose he's not going to answer that question against Sheffield United at the end of the day. Like he could score six goals, including an overhead kick from the halfway line, and <laughs> everyone's going to be like, "Yeah, but it's Sheffield United, though. They're awful." Yeah, it's going to be the goals that he gets in big games. And last season he started, you know, against United, against Chelsea, he scored. Um, it's going to he needs to keep scoring those goals, but then he needs to keep getting the chances to do so. And I think Arsenal fans, um, to an extent, need to be able to go, "Oh." Jesus isn't playing and Ketty will be fine rather than, oh no, Jesus isn't playing. We've got Nketiah up front. I mean, that's sort of cyclical. You know, he needs to inspire more confidence through his performances and the fans need to be able to back him to have those performances and not jump on the bandwagon at the moment. He has a five out of 10 game, which a lot of people did against Chelsea. Yeah, I could understand that. And I, I just, I think that I could, maybe you compare him a little bit to, you know, like Cannon Wilson at, at Newcastle, where 
I mean, Callum Wilson is obviously a lot more experienced than, than he is. And, and Nketiah, as you said, he has improved so much. He, he, he will continue to improve, I believe. And obviously Arteta sees something in him, which I think is the biggest thing. Because if Arteta is is saying that he he's proven enough to keep getting these chances, then, then you know, you better believe that he's showing on the training pitch, which is, which is probably, you know, the, the biggest endorsement you can get. But the the reason I make that, that comparison is that Callum Wilson is, an, is another player that doesn't necessarily get too involved in the game. This is similar to to Eddie, who works really hard, presses really well. When he gets the space to carry it, he carries it quite well. But in the end of the day, strikers like Callum Wilson, like Eddie and Ketia, they'll be judged on goals. And I think the thing you could say about Eddie, and admittedly he has had limited chances, but like he's reached five goals in the Premier League after that game, which is his best tally so far, which has probably been, you know, the main stick to, to, to bash him with over the last few seasons is that, you know, in, in 2021, he got five in, in 21 um, appearances last season, he got four in 30. And even though he's had limited chances, there was that point where he yeah, was out for quite a lengthy time and still like, I'd say four goals is a fairly poor return for, for an Arsenal striker. But obviously now with that hat trick, 10 in five, um, five and 10 so far this season. So, it's this, he needs to, he will be judged on goals because that's the type of striker he is, which is why we need to see a bit more consistency from him now. I think that if if he can become, and as I say, I don't expect him to score every time he comes off the bench. I know he needs to have a chance to start as well, but I think if he can become a, a striker that scores, you know, a goal every 200 minutes of, of action, um, uh, like he has, to be fair, after that trick probably so far this season, then then suddenly you've got a player that the that the fans can expect goals from rather than just hope they come from. I think that probably is kind of the main thing that comes to him. But you know, we have to give him massive like he deserves his flowers after yesterday because you know this is a team that was a bit thrown together, a bit perhaps disjointed. I think that the opening kind of period of this game against Sheffield United, we didn't. It's not that we struggled to break him down. It just it just felt a bit a bit nothingy, like we weren't really creating much chances, and then it took a bit of Chelsea reject quality, right? To to Declan Rice to kind of pick up the ball, drive forward a, a, a bit with it, put that ball into box, and then the, the touch from Enketia, the one that sets up the finish, is just so impressive. And um, uh, and then as you say, like shades of his first goal when he comes off the bench, um, uh, comes in from a corner, uh, he's in the right place at the right time rifles it into the top bin diesel absolutely fantastic and then uh the third one um gives he gives smith Rowe a very very generous assist by taking it off of him about three yard pass and then turning and sparking it to the top bins as well so th- this is the type of stuff we want to see and it's, it's not to say that he needs to score a hat trick every week but we just need to see consistent goals from him if he wants to eventually become that guy that you talk about the guy that is going to convince yeah. arsenal not to spend the money on a big striker like mm. ivan tony and different goals as well, I think. Yeah. Like he needs to show that he's got different strings to his bow rather than just being really, really positionally aware in the six-yard box. Because although we do score from a lot of cutbacks and he will get a lot of goals that way, there will be times when, like, you know, in the early stages against Sheffield United, we're playing against nine in front of their own keeper. And we're not going to have the space to create the cutbacks necessarily. You want to pick it up between the lines, maybe quick one two, put it in the corner, you know, that kind of vibes. He needs to be able to show that he's got this in his locker and not just standing on the penalty spot or around the penalty spot and turning it in, which he does regularly and very well. We know that. We need to see the next step. And I I think we're seeing it. Like, I think he's been very, very good this season. I thought he was really good against Palace. Um, I thought he was really good, obviously, against Sheffield United. 
And I think that he is really growing into that that number 14 shirt that we gave him. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm trying to remember the name of it now. I'm going to have to do some research as I tell you this stat. But after Eddie and Ketty's hat trick uh, yesterday, it means that Arsenal players that have worn the uh, the number 14 shirt have now scored a hat trick in the Premier League going back until. I'm about to get this thing now. So Eddie and Ketty scored a hat trick. Aubameyang scored a hat trick. Theo um, Walcott scored a hat trick. And uh, Thierry scored a hat trick. And the person that. I've got very, very slow in that, Ben. You're going to have to live with me here. It's all right. I'm just very grateful we never gave it to Maro and Shamak. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Although I saw a stat for him the other day, actually, that apparently he scored on his first three uh, Champions League. Apparently, like, Gabby Zeus is the first player to score on his first three Champions League games for Arsenal since Maro and Shamak. So that's another <laughs> very nice right. stat for you. I was seeing, I don't know if you saw earlier on Twitter, there was like a someone had asked, what was your club's darkest moment? And then I ended up down an Arsenal wormhole that was mostly from lockdown, but it had the Aubameyang miss against Olympiacos and it had the oh, Villa 3-0 at the Emirates. And it was just, I was just there thinking, oh my God, do you remember when we started Sonogo at the Allianz? Yes. And like all of that. And you're just like, <laughs> how far we fell and how we're oh, coming man. back. And it would be like, if we started in Kessier at the Allianz, that's very different, but it would be like, I, I, I can't even think of a comparison. Like like starting Elneny in defensive midfield at the Allianz now mm. it was just sort of oh i've been through a whole roller coaster of emotions today and just to complete my stat from earlier it was david hillier who got the shirt in 94 95 was the last arsenal number 14 not to have scored a premier league hat-trick so in it in very very good company and nearly in even more unique company where if he had scored the penalty that we got awarded which he you know he could have taken if he wanted to he'd have been up there with uh, thierry Henry um as and and is it ian wright there's another player that... Um, uh, Come on, that's not Ian Wright. You can do this. It's <laughs> iconic. The celebration's iconic. Oh, Liverpool, away. Oh, Arshavin, of course. It's Arshavin, God. <laughs> Was it 2012? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, I've got the image of mind of him just with like the four fingers up as well. The look yeah, exactly. Face. It's iconic. Yeah, yeah. So he could have been up there with Thierry Henry and Andre Arshavin as someone to score four goals for Arsenal Premier League. But instead, he gives it to Fabio Vieira. Um, for you know, he said that he's expecting a babe, which is really nice of him. You know, did you think that you know if because I've I've heard Alan Shearer talk about this type of thing before, where he kind of mentioned that kind of thing. He says that he'd take it anyway. Do you think that the fact that we've been so giving of penalties this season to improve players' confidence, like? I feel like some people paint that as a bad thing, but for me, it's it's surely like like a brilliant thing because Eddie Nketiah could have broken records with another goal and still he looked to give it to a teammate. So yeah, I, I think that's amazing. I just, it scares me a bit. Like it, it didn't obviously a 3-0 against Sheffield United, but sort of passing the ball around, like Saka and Erdegaard like to have a little, like you know, Whoever takes it, takes it. But it, it does just worry me that we don't have a set penalty taker. And I know some clubs do it. Like City don't really have a set penalty taker but, or didn't have one before Haaland. Um, it just feels like there's more to go wrong. I don't know. Yeah. I guess maybe none of our players have the best record from the penalty spot. Apart from um, in terms Jorginho, of maybe. Volumes. Yeah, or Jorginho. 
He was, in terms yeah, of scoring volume and penalties. He hasn't taken, has he? Other than the, the, the charity shield, has, has Jorginho taken a penalty for Arsenal? Has he been on the pitch when we've had any penalties? I think he was well, on the one for the Spurs penalty because he gave the ball away straight after it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I suppose... I don't have to feel any sort of way, but immediately in my mind, it's like if you don't have a designated penalty take, it's a bit like not having a designated goalie in my mind, where you're like, if you don't have a set number one, it feels like there's more moving yeah, parts that can go wrong. It's true. It's like if you, if you don't have a set penalty taker, it's like, well, why is he not taking it? Does he not back himself? Like, does he back does he back this other player? Why is this other player not taking them more regularly? You know. Yeah, that's true. I think we're just going to move on now. Just there's one more thing I think we should talk about before we move on to West Ham, and it's Takahiro Tomiyasu, who you know is is a fan favourite. He got his first goal for the club uh, against Sheffield United. He's on a really like good like vein of form now, where he's popping up in a lot of different positions and he's doing a really good job in in any of them. Like he's coming off the bench with the enthusiasm of of a player that's, that's starting a game and. You know, it's clear you can see that the love that he gets from everyone, like people appreciate what he does. I've got, you know, no, I've got no illusions that he can do the job of Zinchenko, but I think that he, he it's not to say he comes close, but he gives us a different dimension in, in a sense. And I do think there'll be games where we need kind of that Zinchenko. I think against Sheffield United, Zinchenko is quite important to be fair, because he was popping up in really good areas and he was pinging the ball about. I think one of the things and the, and the, the themes about this game is, you saw Zinchenko and Saka moving a lot more freely in and out of the team because I feel like they were almost that hub among a lot of players that do a lot of runs. You know, like Smith Rowe is very pass and run. Havertz is very like run, run orientated. Martinelli is very run orientated, and Ketty is very run orientated. So I think Saka and Zinchenko kind of took the onus upon themselves to be the nucleus of the team, which may not work every week, but it worked then. But I, I think that there'll be other games where the physicality and the the tactical flexibility of a, of a Tomiyasu. Like we saw last season when we played Liverpool and uh, Tomiyasu kept Salah quiet for like 70 minutes and Klopp ended up subbing him off. Like this is a player that can give a lot. And I think that this is a player that could still fight his way back into this 11. Like, like what do you think? Do you think that, that Zinchenko should be wary of the threat of Tomiyasu? Do you, do, do you think that when we... Um, uh, Obviously, there'll be rotation against West Ham, but when the, the Premier League rolls back this weekend, do you think that Tomiyasu could be in line for another start? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think... Um, I, I don't know whether it will be a horses for courses kind of vibe with Zinchenko and Tomiyasu, but I think that... I think I think Zinchenko's had a pretty patchy start to the season, um, and that's being generous, you know, by his own high standards and yeah. by what we've come to expect of him. And I think Tomiyasu has returned to his pre-injury form like the first season we had him which by the way 60 million for him is an absolute steal whoever whoever decided to sign off on that transfer excellent but we did we did sort of predict last season that Tomiyasu would move across to left back especially after we saw that Salah thing Mm -hmm. and I do think that we saw Timber there a bit well before he got injured we saw him there pretty regularly actually Um, and I think that there is a a clear acknowledgement from Arteta that Zinchenko's weaknesses can't always be hidden 
all accepted on a football pitch. You can't accept that sort of risk where he's a liability defensively because it will cost you games. And I think that Tomiyasu, if he continues to, you know, he's not as good as Zinchenko in those central areas, but he's much better than Kieran Tierney was, for instance, in those central areas. Yeah, night and day. And I, sure. I think that if he can carry on and carry on improving there, he is probably, I'd say, I, I say our best defender. Like mm-hmm. if I, I, I think that he offers so much to the team, so much security to the team at the back. And then going forward, he's obviously an aerial threat. We saw against, um, was it City when you said the Beefcake, Beefcake Brigade came on? And <laughs> he did he it again in the Champions League as well, didn't he? It just felt like he was yeah. playing where, where, where Zinchenko plays left back slash centre midfield. It feels sometimes Tomiyasu's like, um, he must get away from Arteta because it feels like sometimes Arteta's just like going up, up you get Beefcake, win that ball. <laughs> Well, he is really useful for that because he will just help us. You know, I remember we went to the game against, I think I think it must have been the North London derby when you and I went. And you just turned to me after about 60 minutes and went, Tommy Assi wins everything. He does. And that, that hasn't changed. Like, he still wins an incredible amount of duels. He's still so versatile. And he's a really useful player to have around. Um, I was actually thinking earlier when we were talking about Havertz and about how I wonder if, there might be a similar uh, career path with Havertz at Arsenal. You know how Tommy Asu was signed for right back, but mm-hmm. actually is ending up playing not at right back. He was initially playing at right back because we didn't have a right back. Um, and, you know, but as, as they said on Sky, he's not really a centre back. He's not really a right back. They don't know where he's going to play, so they stick him left back. Um, I think Havertz might be similar, where it feels to me like we haven't replaced Granite Xhaka. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I always think. Yeah. I always think to myself, like, why would we not have Jacker here? Like, what are we missing with Jacker? Why didn't we go out and replace Jacker with someone who can play that left eight very, very naturally? You know, we look uh, across the leagues; there'll be loads of players that can do it. But we've gone for Havertz because he offers a different dimension in different areas. You know, he's taller and he's a bit more. Um, he's, well, he's better in the air. He's got good hold up play, that kind of thing. And I wonder whether he might push him push Havertz further forward when we get a central midfielder when we get another building block in in centre mid we might get Havertz released up front but for now he's sort of doing the centre mid job to bed into the team and get used to it all um like Tommy Asu played right back for ages and now he's playing left back you know it's going to be a I, I don't know that was just a thought that I had while I was while we were talking about um Smith Rowe and Havertz and their versatility what do you think yeah I mean that's that's the that's the big thing isn't it is like, as you say Zinchenko hasn't hit the heights that we've expected him to hit so far this season. He's had good games and he's had games where he's not looked as effective. And that's what almost opens the door for the likes of Tomiyasu. Because if Tomiyasu can keep doing seven out of 10 performances, then, you know, eventually that consistency counts. And it's the same with, like, when we talk about Emma Smith earlier, where last season he was up against Granite Xhaka, who was doing seven out of 10, eight out of 10 performances every week. And it, like it's hard for a Smith Rowe or a Fabio Vieira to get in front of that when someone is just freakishly fit all the time and freakishly good all the time. And that was why I think when we had the conversation about Xhaka leaving, like we were all very in, in the admittance that this is a, a tough void to, to fill because of, of what he does. And as you said just then, we've gone for a different dimension. We wanted someone that can give us more in attacking positions and uh, Havertz has come in and as I say like the club spent a lot of money on him and obviously have a lot of belief in him at this point in time so obviously they'll give him the time to to have the opportunities to realize that role 
But at the same time, we've already seen how ruthless it is that he can come in six five million, start in a team, not perform, you know, and most of these games he plays, he's not even bad. He's just not good either. And even that isn't isn't enough to stay in this team. You have to actually show something. And that's the reason why we're seeing the likes of, of Saka, Declan Rice, Erdegaard in the team pretty much any time we can get them in because they're just so, so good the majority of weeks. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it, it is ruthless. And we, we've seen Arteta be ruthless before. But I do, I do wonder whether we're going to see... Havertz moved further forwards, and then you know Jesus maybe moved out. What there's so many dynamics in the team. I guess is the is the important thing. That's uh, without picking a starting eleven, and you know without saying there's a sixty five million pound player on the bench. If we disregard the price tag, you can put Havertz up front. You can put Jesus on the right. You can Havertz can play centre mid. But it does feel like we're lacking a number eight because mm-hmm. maybe maybe because we couldn't get rid of or we couldn't or didn't offload Thomas Party. You know where Rice is playing that number eight role, and it feels like longer term. For for me, longer term, he feels like a six. I feel like we bought him to be a six, and then we're still missing an eight. Whereas at the moment we're playing Party at six, Rice at eight, or Havertz at eight. So it feels like we're kind of a profile short in there. And I don't know if Smith Rose the right one either. He feels too. Um, I don't know what the word is. Di- direct, maybe. He's a very. Yeah, he's a very direct footballer. He does a lot of dribbling um, and tends to be a sort of... in Like, he was best for us when we were playing in transition and mm-hmm. he could dribble through players rather than when we we're playing against low blocks or whatever and we need maybe a more technical player in there. So if, if it does feel... I don't know about you. It feels like we're a profile short in there for me at the moment and I wonder how that's going to sort of shake itself out. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, taking a conversation back to, to Smith-Rowe, even when we spoke about him earlier, but like... One of the things I always think about Smith Rowe is one of the things that I remember Slavin Bilic saying about Payet, and they always, um, I think it might have been during the World Cup coverage where um, Payet had been called up for France, and um, and it was either the World Cup or the Euros, probably the Euros actually, and Sandwich was doing commentary duty, and he was um, in the pundit in the studio before the game and after the game, and they said to him, "Why don't you play Payet as number ten? Because he's so creative, he scores so many goals." Like, why don't you put him in that position that is kind of earmarked for the most creative player in the team? And he said, Pyatt is one of those players that feels best when he's facing the game. And to have him in a number 10 where you're picking up the ball back to goal and then having to kind of play the ball off and in, in, in get it in congested areas, like he probably would be able to kind of create stuff in these areas, but it's not where he's best. And, and he puts him on the left wing because it allows him, even though he's not really a winger, it allows him to get the ball there, kind of drive inside or even arrive in kind of that kind of left half space and then drive with the ball rather than kind of already being there and getting someone like a defender up his back every time he's trying to receive the ball. And I think Smith Rowe is another example of, of exactly that, where he played best when he, had, he was on the left-hand side and his, his best area to arrive in is that left half space. And he had Tierney flanking him. So he was constantly able to kind of run in, out to in and Tierney would become that far wide player, almost the winger. And he was able to kind of drive at people through there. As you say, works best in transition when we're counter-attacking people, we can get the ball and drive. And even though I think the left half space is definitely his best area, I think that defensively he's got a lot to work on if he wants to play there, which is like a, like another dimension of the game from winger to centre midfielder. And then also 
I think that he needs to just just work better on on how he can be effective in those areas. Because I think when he's played there for England and twenty ones, and when he's played there for Arsenal, he, at times he just looked really really ineffective. So I think you know Arsenal has to find the answer to that solution, but also Smith Rowe's got to find the answer for himself because he's not going to get in the Arsenal team as a left winger. He's not going to get ahead of Martinelli, and he probably doesn't get ahead in ahead of Trossard either. So I think that is probably like one of the the big things for him. And also, you know, Havertz is, is in a similar boat. He has to he has to find a way to make himself effective because he was bought because his quality suit what the team wants to have in that area. And um, and I think that 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 is um, something that we need to, to to kind of figure out on our own. Yeah, I mean, I, as I say, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think. He's got some some clear improvements to make. I like the fact that he's getting minutes, but I, I don't I don't know the way this team's going to progress because it did move, you know, it progressed a hell of a lot and it changed a hell of a lot with Smith Rowe out of the side. Um, and now he's back. You know, it's, it's going probably going to change again. Probably going to see different profiles coming in January or in the summer and even with like Ramsdale and Raya, the, di- the dimension of the team has changed slightly there. So it feels like it's an ever-evolving process. Um, and that, that's exciting. You don't, want, you, don't, you don't want to get bored, but also it's kind of like you have to either get on the train or get left behind at the station. And there's a bit of a worry that maybe Smith Rowe's in the latter camp at the moment. He's d- desperately running after the train. You know, in the, like in those movies where he's he missed it and he's running after it. Stop! And he's yeah, he's pounding on the window like, "Please let me on this train." Um, but make a lot of you know, Exactly. Yeah, it, it feels okay, a bit yeah. like that at the moment. Yeah. What does I say? Um, uh, the probably the the best thing for him is that he has the opportunity now of repeat performances because we have uh, coming up this week um, uh, the League Cup game against West Ham where we have a real opportunity to kind of get into a situation where this becomes very, very winnable because we know that Newcastle knocked out Manchester City in the last round. We know that we have Liverpool, Chelsea, United and Newcastle still in the competition, potentially if they win their fixtures. So there's still a lot of good quality in there, minus Manchester United and Chelsea maybe. <laughs> but it's, it's something that... Now, now. You know, so I had, to, I had to poke it in there. But, you know, we're one of the favourites, if not the favourites up there of Liverpool at this point in time for this. And obviously, you know, we have a hard game against West Ham who, you know, not a great performance against uh, against Everton on Sunday, but all the same, they've still had a good season. They have weapons, you know, like uh, Lucas Paquetar is ha- having a really good season. James Ward-Prowse looks like he's a brilliant sign-in. They're probably still lacking goals in general, but, you know, Jared Bowen feels like he's starting to come back into the form that kind of put him on the map. So this is a team that if they don't rotate, which I don't know if they will or not, I imagine they probably will because they've got European competitions. They're probably dying for an opportunity to give their players a rest as well as us. They they have players that that can hurt us, Um, but it gives us another opportunity. Do we want to rotate? We've seen the rotation against United kind of extended to a lot of the players, but didn't extend to the likes of like Saliba still played, Saka still played, Declan Rice still played. You know, when you're approaching this game, Ben, do do you think that those those three players just mentioned would you rest them? How strong do you think we need to go? Um, I think. If Erdegaard's fit, Erdegaard plays. 
Um, Saka's spoken already about his desire to be more durable. I guess he wants to play every three, ga- three days, which I know we've had a lot of uh, discussion on this podcast about whether we think he should be or whether he's being overplayed or whatever. Um, and I, th- I don't think we- we've got another profile like Saliba in the in the squad. So I think he's probably the riskiest one. You can bring Gabriel back in, which is a massive bonus. I mean, I'd, I'd, I as we were talking about Sheffield United just then, I had completely forgotten that Gabriel didn't even start. You know, we didn't mention Kivio because he didn't really have anything to do. Um, but I think Gabriel will probably, I mean, Gabriel should come back into the side, really shouldn't he? I think we'll see a pretty strong starting eleven, just because I don't think West Ham will rotate. They're under under a fair amount of pressure. I'm pretty sure they were booed off against Everton when they lost at the weekend. They didn't look particularly good. And from memory, I think Paqueta and maybe Edson Alvarez are both suspended for the next Premier League game. So there's no reason really not to play them. And as you say, James Will Prowse has been excellent for them. So it will just be, I think it'll be two pretty strong, strong sides. I'd be surprised if we see the likes of um, Charles Sago Jr. or Cozy Adubu, for example, certainly from the start. And I think we might, we might see Reese Nelson. That'll be a fun one. Um, and obviously we've got so much depth now that even when you go through the options that we could see, it feels like we could still put out a pretty good team. Like if our front three was Trossard and Ketty and Nelson, that wouldn't be too bad. Mm-hmm. Where they all seem to have stepped up to a decent level. I think, again, the, the midfield is going to be interesting. I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe Jorginho back in um, and Declan Rice as a left eight and Smith Rowe fall out again. But I'd like I'd like to see something throw given more chances, but I don't know whether this is it, you know? Yeah. Um I think one player that probably will be given a chance because he he started the, the game against Brentford last round is Aaron Ramsdale would look to come in to play his first game since then. And, you know, it's it's obviously it's gonna fuel the, the discussion. This is gonna be a never ending discussion from from the point that Raya got into the team against Everton all the way to the end of the season. As long as Ray isn't 100% convincing, this this discussion is going to persist. And I think that Arteta almost invited this this type of discourse when he when he said about the idea of of subbing a goalkeeper off in the same game. Um, so I think this is something we're going to get used to. But like Raya, his numbers are better than Ramsdale from a statistical observational perspective. That isn't really up for debate. He he's more effective with the ball at his feet. He makes more saves, blah, 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 blah. He's better statistically, but he hasn't been convincing. I don't think anyone can really say he's been convincing. He's had uh, kind of moments where he's come close to conceding some very embarrassing goals, like, you know, when he nearly got charged down against Manchester City to the point where he passed the ball out um, during the Chelsea game. And then in the in the Champions League game, um, uh, this this after stuff this midweek, he, he did the, the Superman punch, which nearly went to his own net. So... Until the point that David Raya is so good that the idea of Rams are coming in just doesn't even enter people's minds, this is going to be a conversation. And when Arteta is saying things along the lines of having two number ones, in terms of the democracy of having two number ones, how much longer can Raya make these types of errors and close calls before there is legitimate calls for Ramsdale to, to come back in, do you think? Um. I think Mikel Arteta's made his decision. That's you know that's one of the things that you either love or hate about him is his 
faith or stubbornness, depending on which side of the fence you fall on. He is he seems to have decided that Raya is his number one for now, for whatever reason. Um, you know, Raya's stats are better and he was good against Sheffield United in terms of his distribution, but as you say, there have been pl- it feels like there have been a lot more hairy moments with Raya in goal than there have been with Ramsdale in goal, despite Raya having played about six games in goal and Ramsdale having played, you know, two two and a half seasons or whatever it is. So I mean, that's probably just recency bias, but it does feel like almost every game we're either, you know, again, it could just be because Raya is a new goalie and there's pressure on him because of Ramsdale, but it does feel like we're almost expecting a mistake, a game, or like a bit of nervousness or whatever. It doesn't feel like he's had a clean game since his debut. So I think there's there's a legitimate case for Ramsdale to be returned to number one already. I just don't think it will happen. Hopefully he plays against uh, West Ham. And you'd like to think he would, because otherwise it's a pretty cut and shut case. You know, I thought he'd start in the Champions League, but Raya's been chosen for that as well. So it does, it feels like we're running out of options with Ramsdale um, for now. And there's a lot of talk in the press about him, you know, leaving in the in January, going to, Ch- going to Chelsea, going to Bayern. So I don't know. I think he should start. I can see why people think he should be number one. It felt like we were less um, error prone with Ramsdale and goal, even though, you know, when you think about it, when you think it through, we weren't, but it it just feels like Raya's had a very shaky start to his Arsenal career and it's, it's, it's shone light on flaws that he has that maybe we hadn't thought about before. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I mean, in my opinion has always been that there isn't really such a thing as two number ones. Arteta bought Raya because he wasn't convinced of Ramsdale. And, you know, that is part of the ruthlessness that we've seen from Arteta, like you say, like the the the, the bridge of, of stubbornness versus faith where he makes his decisions. He wants to take Arsenal to the top and he doesn't really have the time for a lot of sentiment in that. And I think if before Arteta took over, you, someone offered you that in a manager, you, you'd bite their hand off. So, um. Uh, We've seen the ruthlessness throughout his time, you know, like when he took Capsi off of Aubameyang and kind of exorced him from the from first team and things like that. Like the fact that we signed uh, Villian and and sold him after one season because he wasn't doing the business. We've we've seen it time and time again. So the, I think the big thing for Ramsdale is there may be a point that he gets an opportunity, but if he comes in and displays what we've seen from over the last few years, then what's the point? Because we've replaced him because we're not totally convinced in him that that is evident. I don't think that's arguable. So if he comes in and doesn't look completely improved, which is going to be hard for a goalkeeper that hasn't really played much football to do, then is there any much point in him fighting for his place? Which is why when I see links to other clubs, I can't stand it because, because Ramsdale is like a very good goalkeeper and he's too good to be sitting on someone's bench. And he's not going to be sitting on our bench for very long if he's not, able to work his way back into this uh, this battle with, with Raya. And he can go in against West Ham. And the similar, like he went against Brentford and he had a good game. He made some a few really good saves and it didn't mean anything uh, or at least didn't mean enough that he was able to kind of get a go because since then, as we've kind of pointed out, Raya has, has made a whole host of uneasy moments and Ramsdale still hasn't gone in. And that's not really me saying that I think Ramsdale should get in. I think the, the the weird thing for a fan in this thing is is that I've already got an emotional attachment to Ramsdale. So 
if you ask me who I hope wins this battle, I'd say Ramsdale. But even in like like but think about it with with my head instead of my heart, I know that Ramsdale has to become a convincingly better goalkeeper than he previously has been if he wants any chance of that. So Yeah. It's it's kind of it's weird, isn't it? Because it's not like Bellerin, for instance, where he was a fan favourite but everybody could see all of his flaws and he clearly wasn't good enough to be playing for us anymore at the level that we wanted to be at. Because Ramsdale was fine, you know. He pulled out that save against Liverpool last season. Obviously, mm. there's that one against Leicester. And he, is, he signed a new contract in, was it January? February, something like I, that? I think it was more recently than that, honestly. Was I actually it even think more it was, recently? It might have actually been. And I'm going to double-check this. I think he might have actually signed that contract either very close to the season ending or actually after the season ended, which is Cause what makes that sort of came out of the blue, confusing. but it was sort of a reflection of the, the U-turn that the fans had made on Ramsdale. Cause obviously before he came in, everyone was saying, Oh, May. he's not good enough. 18th of May. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Cause I, I remember everyone was really happy that he signed his new contract. And I think CIES or CEIS or whatever they're called, um, had, had pointed him out as the most valuable goalkeeper in the world. And he pulled up, he got that save of the month against Liverpool and, he had had a few shaky moments, like against Southampton and um, earlier in the season against Fulham, I think it was. But he was very much connected with the fans, and he, as you say, he's got that personal connection that Raya doesn't have for whatever reason. And it always feels that when you can't say Ramsdale's been very bad and deserves to be replaced, and that that means that when someone else comes in who maybe doesn't have that personal connection, as you say, is it's so much harder because it's it's not an obvious upgrade. Like, it may be an upgrade, mm-hmm. and all the metrics may say it's an upgrade, but we watch it every week and we say, well, Ryan nearly cost you a goal here, nearly cost you a goal here, nearly cost you a goal here. And Ram, maybe Ramsdale might not offer as much on the ball, but maybe, like, it felt like mistakes were less frequent. You know, if you're doing a mistake per 90, for instance, it feels like Ramsdale would be on a much lower scale than Ryan, even though that may not be the case in Arteta's mind, because he might say, oh, you know, the ball up to the striker wasn't good enough and therefore we lost it and lost a chance or whatever. It just, from a match-going fan perspective and from a like bird's-eye view perspective, it felt like Ramsdale did very little to be like pushed to the side and now he's not getting the chance to prove himself again. It feels even harder to 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 get on board with that, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things about this is that there's a situation I've heard a lot of Arsenal fans talk about, and admittedly it's before my time, but um, I always hear about when um, John Lukic played for Arsenal, and you know I'm looking at his Wikipedia now, and like he he won like a like a like a like a league title for Arsenal in 1989 to 90, no, sorry 1988 to 89, and then in um, uh, in 1990, um, supposedly George Graham just decided he wanted to replace him with David Seaman, and um, uh, and ended up buying David Seaman and uh, and selling uh, John Lukic to Leeds United. But I think that, you know, the, the, it feels to me a kind of a similar situation because I, I've, what I've read about this is that initially the fans were very upset that um, that they'd signed David Seaman to replace Lukic because Lukic was a fan favourite. He'd played over 200 games, just said he won like a league title. But obviously David Seaman's gone on to become one of the best goalkeepers in the, in the history of Arsenal Football Club. So... Um, it'd be interesting to see how this plays out, but I think that is a really good place for us to leave it. We have, you know, we've had a, a, a blessed weekend where we haven't had to worry about the football because it's been so convincing and enjoyable, and we have 
as we said in this podcast, like a really interesting cup tie come up against West Ham this week where win, a win would put us into a legitimate uh, situation of a, of a cup this season at least, which um, would obviously be brilliant for Arteta to, to kind of get another cup because last one was the FA Cup win against Chelsea. And um, and then at this coming weekend, we have uh, Newcastle away, which is obviously one of the toughest away trips in the league. So we'll be back with a preview pod uh, for the uh, the Newcastle game, along with talking about the, what transpires in our cup tie against West Ham. I have been the greasiest Luke, and I've been joined by the strictest Ben. Ben, thanks very much for, for coming to talk to, to me today, mate. Are you going to enjoy the rest pleasure. of the day? As strict as I am. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, I'm going to go go play some football, go to the gym, you know. Now it's dark, I've got to actually go out of the house, so. Ah, man. And I'm looking forward to, to being able to watch Arsenal again in midweek. That international break felt like it took years. So to have really? Arsenal back twice a week uh, in the both uh, weeks straight after the international break is really enjoyable. And also, you know, it's always still fun to be able to laugh at Chelsea and Manchester United for results over the weekend. Um, you did really well, by the way, to only mention them once in this 57-minute recording. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Thank you very much. I completely agree with you. I think, you know, that international break felt like years. But we are back now with football, football, football. And we'll be back with you, as I said, with another one after the West Ham game. This has been the Bruce Runner FC podcast. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Erdegaard is joining in. And he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it! Bakayo Saka, beaten out by the wrist, untouched in by Jesus! Bakayo Saka, 